That was wonderful. Let's give him another hand. It was a, it was a great debut. All right, well, good morning. Thank you, everybody, for coming out for our kickoff Sunday. How many of you guys got to watch one of the games yesterday? Anybody watch a game? And this is a good week, right? Because U of L and UK both won yesterday. So I don't want to see any frowny faces, okay? All right. And uh, my Bears are starting next Sunday, and I'm not thinking I'm going to be smiling. We, we're a terrible team. I'm just going to be honest, right? We're a terrible team, and they put us up against uh, some, a team that was in the Super Bowl last year. That's just not even fair. That's like kicking a man while he's down. But uh, anyway... Uh, we, uh, we wanted to have a little fun today, and so we thought, you know, se- September's a good way to kind of kick off and get back into our normal uh, procedures. I know it's Labor Day, so you still got a few people out and that kind of thing, but we just thought this might be a fun way uh, to, to get things going. And uh, as I began thinking about football and, and what makes a good football story, right, we love the, the tale of an underdog. Right? Uh, if you look at all these, there's a ton of different football movies, and they, they all feed into this underdog-type story, right? You think about someone like uh, the, the, the movie uh, Rudy, you know, who was told, oh, you're not a good enough student. You can't go to Notre Dame. And even if you do go, they're not going to let you on the team. And, and sure enough, through the tale of the story, it tell, talks about how he overcomes his learning disabilities and works hard and gets on the team and gets to start for his final game. Um, then there's other stories like The Blind Side, talking about how uh, you know, a young man comes from uh, poverty and, and, and a family that's uh, held down by drug abuse and neglect and those kinds of things, and how he's taken in and, and worked up and able to become an NFL player. Um, and then uh, you, you've got others that uh, follow that same kind of pattern. So underdogs seems to be um, you know, an, an idea about football that we all just kind of grip onto, right? Because it's not as much fun rooting for the people who are on top. I mean, when, when someone comes in and they just they steamroll every opponent and they win every game, yeah, it can be fun a little bit just to think, oh, I don't even have to worry about it. But that's not really as much of a, a fun game to watch, right? What makes it a fun game to watch is when you don't know what the outcome's going to be. Or when, when you're like, look, we don't have much of a chance, but I'm holding on, I've got hope. And so... You know, that's one of the things, that's one of the stories that can draw us in and, and really get us invested in rooting for this team and for that team. And, uh, you know, being an underdog, though, it's also something that we can all kind of relate to, right? Because most of us at some point in our life have been put in a situation where, you know, the odds are stacked against us, right? And so we have to, in those times, you know, do just like the football teams when they're down uh, two or three touchdowns, they can't give up. They've still got, you know, another half of the game to play. They can't give up. Well, we're the same way. When we're the underdogs, we can't give up. And uh, as I was reading through Scripture and thinking about uh, what story we wanted to look at today, uh, I thought of the story of the, uh, the Syrophoenician woman. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to read uh, from verses 21 through 28. Now, this is a story that is contained in two of our Gospels. It's in both Matthew and in Mark. And so they each give a little bit different perspective. Now, I'm going to read from the the Matthew passage first, and then we'll flip over and read the Mark um, and, and just compare those two. All right. So it says, Then Jesus left Galilee 
and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him, pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all, this, with all of her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, Your faith is great, your request is granted, and her daughter was instantly healed. That's a, that's a great story. But let's flip over now to Mark chapter 7. I'll give you just a second to get there. Mark chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 24 through 30. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre, and he didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile, born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, First I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And she replied, That's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plate. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in the bed, and the demon was gone. Amen. Let's pray real quick and then we'll get into our message. Father God, we thank you today for this opportunity to come together as a body and worship you. Lord, we thank you uh, for all of the many blessings that you've given us, for the protection that you've provided us. Lord, we want to thank you for this message, Lord, for this, uh, this story that was preserved in your scripture, Lord, to teach us about you and about what you desire to do for us. Lord God, I pray that you would anoint this time together. I pray that I would speak things that you would have them hear. Lord, I pray that the, 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 the congregation would hear the things that they need to hear. Lord God, we pray that you would bless this time together and we thank you for all that you do for us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this story has always been kind of interesting to me. This is one of two stories that, you know, when you read about it, it, it really kind of piques my interest. And one of the reasons is why, uh, one of the reasons why it does this is because when you look at it, it doesn't seem like a very typical Jesus response, right? When you're looking in this story, um, usually when someone comes to Jesus and says, God, I need you, please help me, Jesus is usually moved with compassion. In fact, it uses that terminology quite a bit in, in the Bible. It'll say Jesus was moved with compassion for, for their situation and for their helplessness and, and their need. And yet here we find that not only did he delay in providing the compassion, but he he was ignoring her at first. He wouldn't even respond. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys have ever gotten the silent treatment from someone before, but man, that can be really frustrating, right? You know, um, we were uh, actually talking about this at my house uh, not too long ago because there are times when Elizabeth will speak to me and in my head I've responded, but I don't actually say the thing. And so she thinks I'm just ignoring her and she gets mad at me. And I don't know what it is, and she'll, say, she'll ask me a question, and in my head, I responded to her, and then she says, are you just ignoring me now? 
You know, and she'll get upset, and I'll say, no, I answered you. She said, you just sat there like a lump. You have not said a thing, you know, and I don't know what it is. Maybe there's a disconnect between my brain and my mouth. I don't know what's going on, but it's very frustrating to be ignored, right? Or how about when you were a little kid, and you'd go up to your mom or your dad, and you're tapping on their arm, mom, 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 and it just seems like they're never going to turn around and acknowledge you, and it's very frustrating to be in that situation, But this goes beyond just frustration, because let's think about the situation that this woman was in. Uh, She was in a situation where she was literally helpless to do anything to assist her child. Now, one of the most frustrating things you can have as a parent is when your child needs something, and you're powerless to do anything to help them. I mean, if anybody's ever sat up at night with a, with a little kid and they're, they're running a fever and you've given them the medicine and you're putting, you put them in ice baths and giving them cold cloths and you've done everything that you know to do and you're, they're still suffering, they're still sick, they're still hurting and, and there's nothing you can do. As a parent, there's not really much of a worse feeling you can have. But we have to understand what was going on here and this is Kind of interesting. First of all, in this passage, it notes that he was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is outside the boundaries of, of Israel. This is outside the boundaries of where Jesus was uh, engaged in ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he told the disciples when he sent them out and said, hey, I want you to go out and start telling people about the kingdom of God. He actually told them, he said, don't go to places like that. Don't go to the Gentiles. we got to go to the Jews first. This is part of God's covenant plan. That we have to go to God's people first. And so he actually told the disciples, don't even go there. Well, then he turns around and goes there himself. Why was he doing that? Well, if you look at the situation, if you look back and see what was going on in Jesus' life, there was, there was a lot going on. He'd been in conflict with the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees, not only the local Pharisees at the synagogues where he was teaching, they'd actually called in the, the backup from Jerusalem. And they had come down and they were challenging his authority. Now, We know, obviously, Jesus had the ultimate authority because He had God's authority backing Him up. And so He overcame the Pharisees, but that was a stressful time. It was a difficult time for Him. And and so, you know, it was something that He was being challenged, you know, and and being pushed. And, and, you know, how do we know that we can trust you? Those sorts of things. On the other hand, too, you've also got the people that were following Him. They were misunderstanding Him. This this story uh, occurs shortly after He had fed the 5,000. And the, the people, you know, they were flocking to him at that point, And they were thinking, this is the prophet that was, the, that was prophesied. He's come. This is the Messiah. And so they were gearing up. They thought, okay, he's finally here. Uh, the kingdom of Israel is going to rise again. We're going to throw off our Roman oppressors. And we're going to be, you know, we're going to be a kingdom again. And so they're misunderstanding what he's doing there. Even his disciples don't really get it. I mean, at this point, this was not long after uh, Jesus had calmed the storm. And the, the disciples had all been afraid, and, and he said, are you so, he, he actually called them dull. He said, are you so dull? You don't get this? I'm in control of this. God's got this. We don't have to worry. And so he was being misunderstood on all three sides, from the Pharisees, from the people, even his own disciples, his hand-picked chosen crew that were supposed to know him better than anybody else, they were misunderstanding him. So obviously, this was a very difficult time in Jesus' ministry. Because if he went along with the people and the people tried to proclaim him king or whatever, that would have led to his arrest. That would have led to uh, you know, not being able to uh, c- complete the ministry and, and all of the things that God had laid out for him to do. It wasn't time for that yet. You know? And so 
like he did often in Scripture, Jesus was trying to withdraw. That's why he, he left Israel entirely. He was going off to get by himself to regroup, to recoup. It says in Mark that he was trying to hide himself, right? But his reputation was just too great. He couldn't do that. So you can understand why Jesus is sitting in this house. He's trying to relax. He's trying to get away from the crowd. He's trying to recoup and regroup and, and, and get you know right and get where he needs to be to go out and do ministry again. And here comes this woman knocking on his door, falling at his feet. I need you. I need you, Jesus. Now, how many of you guys have ever been in a situation where you were just like dead dog tired and then that's when somebody needs something from you, right? It couldn't be, you know, that they needed you when you were on vacation or, or it couldn't be when, when you were well-rested or anything like that. No, it seems like people always need you when you're already spent, right? And that's a difficult place to be in. So, you know, that's, uh, that could be part of the reason for Jesus' reaction. But I really think that what it had to do with more is that Jesus was trying to build her faith, all right? And so let's take a look at some of these characteristics of this woman, and we'll see that it kind of lines up with this story of an underdog. If you look at, at a football team that's an underdog, they kind of are in these same steps, all right? So first, this woman, she was desperate, right? She was at a place where I need outside help. I can't do this on my own. She was, uh, she was a mother. She was unable to help her child. Things were looking grim. And not only that, I mean, it's not like she could expect Jesus to come there because he was primarily doing his ministry inside of Israel. So why would he be over there in her region? And then by luck, he, he just happened to come that way. Or at least from her perspective, it was probably luck. But anyway, she was desperate. She was in a place where, listen, I've got to do whatever I've got to do to help my kid, all right? And, you know, when we look at the child, the ailment that was suffering or that, that was afflicting the child is that she was possessed by a demon. So this is not something that can be dealt with with medicine or chicken noodle soup or anything like that. This is a spiritual problem, and it needs a spiritual answer. And this was a woman who lived outside of the covenant of Israel. She lived outside of the promises of God, and yet at the same time, she thought, maybe, maybe there's a chance. Right? And so um, that is uh, the second part, uh, or the second characteristic of hers, that she had some insight. I've already shared that people were misunderstanding Jesus. They weren't understanding what he was doing. You know, maybe he's just a teacher, so where's your authority come from? Maybe he's going to be a king, so let's get this thing going. Or, uh, you know, the disciples just over and over again proved they didn't really have a clue as to what Je who Jesus was and what he was doing at this point. They hadn't figured it out yet. But somehow, this woman, who wasn't even a part of Israel, had figured out, this is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and He can help me. He's the only one that can help me. And so she had this insight. And you have to wonder, now again, she wasn't an Israelite, so she didn't have the Scriptures. But you have to wonder if maybe she'd heard of some of the stories from the Old Testament where there were people who were not part of the nation of Israel, but they received blessings through the covenant that God had made with Israel. Um, you can think of, for instance, um, let's see, the, the Pharaoh down in Egypt. Not the one that, that Moses butted heads with, but the one that Joseph dealt with. Think about it. His whole nation was blessed. Not because of anything the Pharaoh did. Not because the Pharaoh was living right. He was blessed because of the blessing that was on Joseph. And that blessing splashed out onto a whole nation in a time of need. And so there you had an entire pagan nation that was worshiping foreign gods 
But they were blessed. Why? Because the covenant of God that was on Joseph was so strong that it covered them as well. And God used that pagan nation to complete His covenant, to protect Jacob and his family and, and all the brothers. You know, that was someone who was outside of the covenant, but they still received a portion of that blessing. Another example of this would be Ruth, who was, you know, from, from Moab, and, 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 and she became a part of, of the, the, the covenant promise through marrying into an Israelite family. You have Rahab, who uh, was a resident of Jericho and was blessed because of the blessing that was on the Israelites. Her family was protected during the destruction of their city. Um, you have uh, the, the, the foreign general Naaman, who was healed of his leprosy. He came to a, a man of God and said, look, I've tried everything. Uh, I've gone to all the doctors. I've done everything they said, but I'm coming to you because I've heard that you, you have a, a, a blessing. You have a, a ministry. And, and he was healed because of that. So you see, through Scripture, it's not unheard of for someone who's living outside of that covenant to receive blessing. And so she was thinking, hey, I'm not a Jew. I'm not an Israelite. I have no right. I have no claim to this blessing. But she held on to that sliver of hope, right? She had that insight. The third thing that she had was she had courage, right? And, and how do we know that she had courage? Well, in the Scripture, it refers to her a couple times. It, it refers to her a couple different ways. In Matthew, it calls her a Canaanite, which again um, indicates that she's not a Jew. She's outside of the covenant. But it also tells us, um, you know, a Canaanite, that means she is a descendant of the very people that were supposed to have been ethnically cleansed, right? Their entire nation was supposed to be wiped out. When the Israelites moved in and took Canaan, God had told them, kill everybody because these people are under judgment. They, they're, they're living and serving false gods. And so if the Israelites had done what they were supposed to do, she shouldn't even be alive. And um, in fact, the ones that did survive, it's not like they just got to continue their life as usual. Most of them were enslaved and forced to work uh, for, for the Israelites. And so she was a Canaanite coming to an Israelite and you know, that, that relationship there was not one where she could count on a kind reception. And then the other uh, way that she's referred to is a Syrophoenician woman. And the reason that Mark gives that information is because back then it was like how you were born, the, the, the culture that you were in, the class that you were in, those sorts of things, that defined everything about how you interact with everybody else. You know, she's, she's Syrophoenician, so she's not an Israelite. Um, she's a Gentile. So she's not one who's under the covenant of God. And she's a woman. And all three of those things in that time and in that culture, were they were things that were stacked against her. right? These were not things that gave her access and, and, and gave her the confidence to think, oh, when I go talk to Jesus, He's going to be all for it. You know, He's going to like me. Um, so she had to have courage to go and, and say, listen, I know I don't have any claim. I know I don't have any right to call on you, but I need your help. So courage was another factor that she had. Um, and I mean, we see this. I mean, even when Jesus responds to her and calls her, uh, you know, compares her to a dog, that's not a very flattering thing, right? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of pet names you can call a woman, right? But calling her a dog is probably going to get you slapped, you know? And it wasn't any different back then. But, you know, what he was trying to point out is that he was trying to say, listen, you don't even have a place at our table, right? 
The children of God have a place at the table. The food that I'm giving them, the blessing that I'm giving them, it's for them. It's not for you, right? And so she was literally, in this story, the underdog. She's the dog under the table, right? That's what he's trying to get across to her. And he's not doing that to tear her down. He's trying to build her faith. He's trying to, to, to see if she's going to continue to pursue. So, um, and, and furthermore, even in that society, I mean, uh, we love our dogs, right? I mean, everybody, you know, people who have pets, we've got cats, we've got dogs, uh, people calling them their fur babies. And I, I saw someone posted a, a picture on Facebook the other day and said, this is, this is my grand puppy. And I thought, it's your grand puppy? Well, yeah, it's, it's my son and daughter-in-law. It's their, they got a new dog, so this is my grand puppy. You know, we look at pets and we think, oh, that's so cute. We love them. You know, we'll have them in our house. They're part of the family, and that's great. But back then, for the Jews, they viewed dogs. I mean, they, they, to them, a dog was as bad as a rat. Dogs were scavengers. Dogs would, would go and eat dead corpses and, and stuff like that. And, and so for them, this was an unclean animal. This was, this was an animal that you were not supposed to associate with. I mean, when you think about with Ahab and Jezebel, when they were cursed, what was the curse they put on Jezebel? They said, the, the, the dogs of the streets are going to come and eat your flesh. I mean, you can't get much of a worse curse than that in the Jewish mindset. Dogs are not even worthy of being a part of your family. So when he called her a, a dog, I mean, he, he's, he's telling her, this is a very strong insult. It's a, it's a very strong way of talking to somebody. So um, she, she did have that courage to come to him. Number three, she had persistence. All right? And it says, it says that she didn't just come in and say, hey, Jesus, I was wondering if you're not busy, could you maybe help me out today? No, it says that she went in and she fell at his feet. All right? Now, this phrase comes from the Roman patronage system, which the way that worked was is if you wanted to get anywhere in life, you had to find somebody who had some power. Maybe it was a politician. Maybe it was a judge. Maybe it was a military officer. You had to find someone in Roman society that had some power, and you had to go pledge yourself as a client. And so what you would do is you would go and you would fall at their feet. You're saying, I'm, I'm pledging my loyalty to you. I want to be under your covering. I want to work with your blessing. And that was how you had to accomplish anything in that society. So when she came, she didn't come with her hands folded and her, and her head bowed or anything like that. She didn't, um, you know, just knock on the door. Or she came and fell at his feet. She was saying, I'm pledging myself to you. I'm placing myself in a, in a place where I am at your mercy. And I am either going to receive a blessing or not based on how you feel and, and what you want to do for me. So she was persistent. And it says that she begged. In, in Matthew, it says she begged. And Mark, it says she was pleading. And it, said she, it says that it got so bad that the disciples were like, she's, she's annoying us with all this begging and this pleading. Send her away. But she wasn't going to let go. Why? Because she needed God. She had nowhere else to turn. And so she pleaded and she begged and she didn't care. Um, I think it, this has happened recently. We've got uh, this, this young boy, William. He's been living with us and... and He's nine years old, just turned nine, and so he does the typical nine-year-old thing, right? When he wants something, he'll come and he'll say, please, 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 please. And, you know, you can say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have candy right before dinner, or we're not going to go do this today or going to do that. It's just, please, 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 just keeps asking over and over and over again. And Ben, the other day, he said, he said, will you stop? He already answered you. He said, no. 
And I thought it was so funny because Ben was the worst at that back in the day. And now he's changed it. Instead of, instead of it being, please, 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 now it's, uh, well, let me come up with another reason to convince you. You know, right? You know, so he'll say, well, I want to get on the Xbox and play with my friends. And I'll say, no, you've, you've played enough today or whatever. But, you know, I only get to hang out with my friends occasionally. And so he's always got some other reason. And I, I was telling him about the William thing. I said, don't fuss at him for saying, please, please, please. I say, you do the same thing. You just use different words, right? But, um, you know, we all, we're all like that. And if it's something we really want, we're going to pursue it, Right? You know, if it's something where it's just like, oh, it'd be okay if I had it, and, and, and okay if it's not, you know, if someone says no, you're just like, okay, it's no big deal. Worst they can do is say no, right? But when someone has something that you need, you're not going to just let it drop it. No, right? You're going to keep pursuing. You're going to keep going after it. And so we have to be persistent, and we have to keep pushing on. What drives us to do that is the hope that they might change their mind, that they might say yes. Maybe we can convince them. You know, and so that hope is what continues to drive us. The, uh, the, the, the fifth thing that she had is that she was humble. All right? She didn't come in demanding anything. She knew she didn't have any rights to claim any of the blessing that Jesus had. But she put herself out there and said, I'm, I'm falling at your feet, those kinds of things. And then the last thing that she had is she had faith. Right? Because she didn't come and say, hey, do you know uh, who I can talk to? Uh, she didn't say, do you have any recommendations for a physician I can go to? Or is there someone else I can talk to? No, she knew her answer was going to come from Christ. And so she had faith in Him. And what's interesting is when, when Jesus finally relents, when Jesus says, um, you know, your daughter is healed, it's not her love for her daughter that impresses him. Although I'm sure that Jesus was happy that she loved her daughter. It wasn't the love that moved him. It was the faith that she had. Alright? And so that faith is, is the characteristic of someone who is in this underdog position. Now, the problem that she had, that her daughter had, is that the daughter was possessed by a demon. When you are in that position, sin and evil have taken total control of your life. If you look in Scripture, it talks about what would happen to people who were demon-possessed. It says that they would, they would go into fits. They would have seizures. They would foam at the mouth. They would, the demon would cause them to, to fall into a fire or, or cast themselves into water. This was a life-threatening thing. The, the devil was doing everything in his power to actually destroy that person. And so, But it was a spiritual bondage. It was a spiritual thing that was affecting them. And so that meant that the answer then also had to be spiritual. And so that's why she had to go to Jesus, right? She had to go to Him for the answer that she needed because there was no other place she could turn to. And, um, you know, although we don't see demon possession as frequently today as we do now, at least not in our culture. You know, there are, I've heard many missionaries tell stories of, of dramatic uh, of, of, of dramatic um, confrontations with demonic spirits in, in other countries, other continents, those sorts of things. It, it seems like the devil still works in that way in that, those countries, probably because they are still very, in, in their culture, open to the idea of, of spirits manifesting and, and those kinds of things, and the devil knows that he can use that. Whereas here in, in, in America, you know, we... A lot of people don't even believe that the spirit world even exists, right? They reject that idea entirely. So if we started seeing a lot more 
demonically possessed people, that would, uh, that would make people believe, hey, maybe there's something going on here. And so the devil knows, hey, I need to back off of that because they don't believe in God without me having to do all this. I can just back up, and then they dismiss the whole idea as just, you know, made up. But anyway, um, even though we don't see as much demonic possession, we still see people that are in places where they are, um, they are being attacked by the devil. They are uh, separated from God, isolated from God. You know, it's one of those things, I don't know if you guys have ever done this before, but I have before. There have been times when I was sitting and I was thinking about God and thinking about, you know, where God has brought me in my life, the people that God has put in my life, how my life has turned out. And, and, and sometimes you think about those times, those forks in the road where it could have gone one way or the other. You know, maybe you decided to take that job and, and relocate your family or, or maybe you decided to uh, pursue a, a one particular uh, career over the other. Um, you know, there, there's lots of times in our life when we come to a fork in the road and it could have gone one way or the other. And one of the times when I was thinking about this, I thought about, you know, what if I had not been born into a good Christian family that raised me to, to, to love and fear God? You know, what if, or what if when I was a teenager and I was struggling to figure out, you know, do I really believe in God? Is this real or is this just what I've been, I believe because this is what I've been told by my Sunday school teachers and youth pastors and all that kind of stuff. You know, when I got to that place, I tried to think, what would my life look like? How would my life be different? And, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me is I thought, you know, if I didn't believe in God and if I didn't believe that there was, um, you know, uh, uh, an, an external um, holy, just God out there, I don't know how I would deal with some of the things that have happened in my life. I mean, because when we look at our life, you know, when we look at the things that happen uh, in the world around us, it's, it's pretty depressing, right? I mean, you see people losing children at a young age and, and miscarriages and, and, and illnesses. You see debilitating diseases, you know, and some of them are from birth and they're genetic, and they have that disorder their entire life. Other people develop diseases, or they're injured in, in, in horrible ways, and, and there's a lot of bad things that will happen in your life. And I think, you know, if I didn't have the hope of God, I don't know that I could handle it, right? And, and so, you know, honestly, it's very easy for me to understand why ideas like depression and, and, and suicidal thoughts and those kinds of things, I can see why those are on a, on a rise in our Society, because our society more and more is rejecting the idea that there is a God out there. And when there is no God, all you see is just senseless violence, right? You're trying to make sense of a world that just doesn't make sense. And so I think about how differently my life could have turned out. And it makes me so grateful for God. But at the same time, it makes me think about those friends and loved ones that I have that have rejected you know, they're out there trying to figure things out on their own. You know, they're the ones who, maybe their daughter's not demon-possessed, but maybe they're dealing with financial struggles or illnesses or, or a marriage that's falling apart, those kinds of things. And they're, they're trying to patch it all back together all on their own. And, you know, spit and duct tape and hard work will work for a little while, but eventually it's not going to be enough, you know. And that's when we have to turn to God. That's our hope that we have to turn to. And so... You know, we have to be in a place where we are constantly willing to point people back to Jesus because He's the only one that's going to give us that answer. He's the only one that's going to take us out of that underdog. I mean, 
you know, if you're in a situation where you're down three touchdowns and it's the fourth quarter, you don't have much of a shot of winning. But if you're going to have one hope, you know, maybe it's that last second Hail Mary pass. Jesus is that Hail Mary pass for us, right? We were in a place where we're going under. You know, we're, we're caught in bondage of sin and, 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 and all the terrible things, you know, the, the effects of the fall that, that occur to us. And God sends this Hail Mary pass sailing in, and it's the salvation of Jesus that, that can turn things around. I want to move uh, now, I want to look in uh, Romans, and we're going to flip over to uh, Romans chapter uh, 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 8. It says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be. But God showed His great love for us for sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Think about that. It says, it says we were utterly helpless, right? There's nothing that you and I could ever do on our own that could accomplish our salvation. We're in a place where, in fact, um, you know, the, the, the Reformed thinkers, they, they also often talked about how does grace work? How does some become saved and some not? You know, and, and, and they believed, and they talked about prevenient grace. They talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit has to begin working in you to even make you open to the idea that God can be there for you and that you can then be saved. And so, you know, we were utterly helpless. There was nothing we could have done on our own. And then it says, but at just the right time. Now, in this time, you know, Paul is writing about how, you know, in just the, in the history of the world, Christ came at just the right time. You know, think about it. If he'd come during Old Testament times, there would not have been the Roman roads and there, the world wouldn't have had a common language of Greek and Latin that they could uh, draw on, those kinds of things, and, and the spread of the gospel would have been greatly hampered. And, and if you look at the study of history, you see that you know, Christianity and, and, and the, the death and resurrection of Christ and then the, the, the early church and how it spread, it all coincides just right in, in the time of history and in the span of history for it to spread and affect the whole world. But I think that it's interesting too that you know, there's a lot of times when it's us, it's just the right time for us. You know, sometimes it can be very frustrating if you've got a family member, a loved one who has rejected Christ and they've turned away and you see, you see the trajectory of their life, right? Um, you see that it's not going where it needs to go. It's, it's going the other way. And you see that they keep trying, they keep struggling, they keep bailing, right? They're using their measuring cup trying to bail out of their, their canoe. Well, a measuring cup might keep you afloat for a little while, but it's not going to keep you afloat for long. And, you know, we see that we need Christ. And what's interesting is that He comes at just the right time. And He died for us when we were unworthy of it. Right? How many of us, I mean, I, I've told um, Ben this over and over again, you know, I'm so grateful for the grace of God because there's been so many times I have failed and I have fallen short, things that I'm ashamed of. You know, I, I'm sure that, that there's people out there with stories of, of things that I've said and done that, I would just be appalled if that ever came out. I don't want anybody to know that, right? Because, why? Because I know the depth of, of my worthlessness, right? I wasn't worthy of God's salvation. And so we have to remember and think about uh, people that we love that are still in that place. God still died for them. And it's our responsibility to share that with them. 
So, um, and then let's turn over to Romans chapter 9. And, and I know you guys have all been there before where you have someone that you love, you care about, and, and you just you really want them to experience salvation. And it's heartbreaking when they don't. And, and this is something that Paul can relate to. In, in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, uh, Paul was talking about the Israelites and he said, My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Listen to this. He said, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Now that's a strong, strong statement. I mean, a lot of times when we're reading Scripture, we can just slide right by something and the weight of it never hits. But think about that. Think about that. This, that, would be like, that would be like me getting up here and saying, I would be willing to give up my salvation if it would save the American people. And we all would like to think that we would do that, right? But Paul is not speaking out of ignorance. He knows what the penalty is for those who do not have salvation. He's willing to take on that, that eternal torment if it would save someone else. And see, thankfully we don't have to do that though, right? God doesn't call us to give up our lives for someone else. Christ has already paid the price. So we have to share that hope with others. And listen, you know, it takes, it takes work. It takes convincing. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, um, I can think of many times where I've shared the gospel with somebody. I've told them about what I believe and why I believe it and pointed them to Scripture and, and, and tried to argue it philosophically and, and had discussions about these kinds of things. And, and the end result was the same. The people walked away shaking their head. We don't know where they're at in that journey. Because when we share the faith, when we share our hope that we have in Christ, um, you know, sometimes it's the first time they're hearing it. But for others, we're just we're pushing the train down the track a little bit further. And eventually, God's going to get them to that place. You don't know where you're at, but it's your responsibility to share that. And, and here's what I wanted to talk to you guys about today. We're all underdogs when it comes to Christ. There's nothing we can offer God that He couldn't already have without us, right? Um, if, if God calls... If God called, you know, I know that God called me to be a minister. In, in, in my life, that's, that's one of the things I'm doing. But if I had rejected that call, if I had said, God, I don't want to be a minister. I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. I'm not going to move to Louisville. I'm not going to work at that church. I'm not going to... If I had turned God down, it's not like God would have said, well, there goes that plan. No, He could have accomplished His will and purpose without me. Right? But rather than rejecting what God has called us to do, we need to get on board with what God is doing. And part of that is by spreading our hope. So, you know, there are a lot of people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis that are in that state where this woman was. They are desperate. Their lives are being wrecked by the power of sin and evil. And they need somebody to come and help them. They don't always know what they need, right? They don't know the answer. How many of you guys have ever been trying to figure something out and you're doing it one way, and you're doing it one way, and you're doing it one way, and it's just not working for you, and then someone comes along and says, hey, flip that over, and then it goes right in, and, and you're like, oh, I didn't even know that I needed that answer. And that's the way it is for a lot of people. But we have to find those people that are in that desperate place, and we have to say, you know, listen, 
God can set you free from that. And that's the hope that we have to share. So how does this tie into football? Well, you know, every year you're building off the season before, right? Uh, I mean, there are teams that are 2-10. and 10, There are teams that haven't even won a game. Um, you know, but every year they come into a season with another chance, right? They've got another chance to turn it over. They've got another chance to, do, do, to, to, to achieve the success, to, to get the touchdowns, to build a winning team. They've got another chance. But someone has to give them that chance, right? They have to make a schedule. They have to make the team. Um, and, and so as Christians, it's our responsibility to go out and give people the chance. And so here is what I want, um, want to leave you guys with today. And I'm, we're not going to do an altar call or anything today, but I want us to think of each of us probably has a friend, a loved one, a co-worker that is in a situation where they're desperate, right? Maybe their need is salvation. Maybe their need is financial. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's a relationship. It's something. And we want to be like Christ. We want to be willing to, to, to help them, right? And so that is what I want to do today. And so at this time, I'd like each of us to think of somebody that we know of that is desperate, that needs somebody. And we're going to pray for them together. And then at the end of that, we're going to dismiss and we're going to go and, and have a great day. And mom's going to come help me wrap this up here. All right. So if everybody has in mind that person that they're thinking of, we're going to pray today, okay? Father, we thank you for today and for this message that uh, you've given us today. Lord, we thank you for this story of this Syrophoenician woman and, and all the characteristics that she's shown us, her, her desperation, her insight, her humility, her, her persistence, her courage, Lord, and her faith. And Lord God, we, we want to be encouraged by that today. But Lord, we live in a world that is facing a lot of stuff. Lord, there's families that are being split apart. There's uh, husbands and wives that are turning against each other instead of building each other up in love. There are children being raised without uh, families that, that, that support them. Lord, there are people that are in bondage to, to, uh, to financial decisions that they made or to drugs or to alcohol. Lord God, we live... In, in a country that has just experienced a great natural disaster, Lord, that has, has, has turned people's worlds upside down. Lord, the righteous and the unrighteous both suffering in those kinds of things. Lord, we are people who need you. We are desperate. We are underdogs. We are, we are not worthy of the grace and the mercy that you've extended to us through Christ. So Lord God, we want to be a people that points people to you. Lord, we don't want to say we've got all the answers because we don't. We're just people. We're just humans like everybody else. We don't have it all figured out. Lord, but we know the person who does, and that's you. Lord God, we thank you for the grace that you've given us. We thank you for the mercy that you've shown us. Lord, like this woman, she cried out and she said, Oh Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, that's our cry today, Lord. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on our friends and our loved ones that have for whatever reason, not turn to You. Lord, that have rejected Your good news. Lord, I pray that You would just be with them. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would begin to work on them and soften their spirits. Make them open to Your move. Lord God, I pray that You would guide us and give us wisdom to know the right things to say and to do to point people back to You. Lord, we pray because we're desperate. Lord, we pray because we're dealing with the effects of sin and evil in this world and we're helpless to do anything about it without you. 
Lord, our city is facing uh, economic struggles. Lord, it's facing cultural struggles. It's facing uh, drug struggles. It's facing violence struggles. I read the other day that our city is, is on pace for the most violent year yet. And Lord God, we don't have any answers to this. We don't know anything to do except to turn to You. And so Lord God, I pray that Your Spirit would fall on this city and would fall on us and help us, Lord, to, to turn things around. And that, Lord, we, we stand today in faith. Lord, we believe that You're the answer. We believe that things can be changed by Your power. And so Father, as we dismiss today, Lord, we pray and we thank You for all that You've done. We thank You that You've not turned a deaf ear to us, that You've heard everything we say. And we pray that You would just help us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.